Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Trump says he won't attend any GOP presidential debates. Ecuador's presidential race heads to a runoff. Saudi border guards are accused of killing hundreds of migrants. Russia's lunar mission ends in failure. ECOWAS rejects Niger's coup leader's transition plan. Russia warns against sending F-16 jets to Ukraine. London's mayor is accused of trying to silence dissenting scientists. Japan's armed forces are accused of covering up harassment. A store owner in California is shot over a pride flag dispute. The Biden administration is set to urge Americans to get new COVID boosters. And Spain beats England to win the FIFA Women's World Cup. In our top story, Trump confirms he'll skip GOP presidential debates. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, NBC, and Politico. On Sunday, former U.S. President Donald Trump confirmed that he won't participate in the upcoming Republican debates about the party's 2024 presidential nomination. Posting on the social media platform Truth Social, Trump argued that, quote, the public knows who I am and what a successful presidency I had, also pointing to what he described as his current legendary polling statistics. The former president referred to a CBS poll released Sunday showing he has 62% of support among Republican voters, with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis holding 16% and all other candidates combined with less than 10% respectively. Trump has stated in prior months that he was unlikely to attend the party's initial debate in Milwaukee this Wednesday. In an interview with Fox News in June, Trump questioned why he would, quote, allow people at 1% or 2% and 0% in polling to question him. Instead of attending the debate, Trump will reportedly release a pre-recorded interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson, according to sources. Trump has also previously said he would not sign a loyalty pledge supporting the party's choice of a candidate if he were not to win the GOP nomination. He remains eligible to take part in the next party debate taking place in September in California. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric just laid down those facts for us and now a pro-Trump narrative from The Last Refuge. There's little that Trump needs to do to cement his position within an extremely uncompetitive race for the Republican nomination. Wednesday's debate shouldn't be about those with paltry poll numbers dominating the conversation. Trump's polls continue to skyrocket, and there are better forums for communicating his agenda to the American people. Journal Sentinel gives us an anti-Trump narrative. While the importance of the Milwaukee debate is damaged by Trump's lack of appearance, the stage will be an opportunity to separate those who are willing to attack Trump for his lack of fitness to serve office and those who choose not to. While Trump's shadow is destined to loom over the debate, candidates must take a stand against the threat he poses to American democracy. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. In this case, they predict there's a 78% chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Eric, I come from a family uh, that has some uh, magicians in it. My uh, Uncle Dan, Dandy Dan, the magical man. And he'll be the first to tell you, don't perform the same trick twice. And, uh, you know, 
Trump doesn't want to go to these debates. He, he, if you watch what he did last time in these in these primary debates, it's yeah. unbelievable the way he put picked apart that field. All that can happen to him is is that you know turnabout's fair play. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it, it can't help him to go here. Right? Whether you like Trump or you hate him? I I don't think he. I wouldn't go either if I were him. You're just well, helping that, out the other folks. Well, that's what I'm saying. And you know he's so busy defending his freedom, he's just going to phone it in the rest of the <laughs> campaign. I'm sure. I mean, that would be so funny if he said, "Listen, I'm." so busy with all these court cases. I would show, but I can't. I yeah. mean, I have this pending litigation. Yeah, if I'm going to record this that, video I would for be you. there. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that would have been so funny and so infuriating. <laughs> because of what you did, I'm not going. Sorry. Right. You know, I'd, yeah. I'd like to, but you exactly. know, my attorneys have advised me I'm, I'm too busy, you know? But that's so funny. <laughs> Ecuador's presidential race heads to a Gonzalez Noboa runoff. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, Bloomberg, Al Jazeera, BBC News, The Guardian, and CNN. Ecuador's National Electoral Council announced on Sunday that the Citizens Revolution Movement Party's Luisa Gonzalez would compete in a second-round runoff against entrepreneur Daniel Noboa on October 15th after neither candidate won over 50% of the vote in the presidential election. With 85% of the ballot counted, Gonzalez was leading with 33% of the vote, and Noboa was in second place with nearly 24%. While Gonzalez is reportedly considered a pupil of former President Rafael Correa, Noboa is a banana industry scion and son of Alvaro Noboa, who ran for the presidency a record six times and made the runoff three times without securing victory. The snap election was called in May when outgoing president Guillermo Lasso dissolved the opposition-led Congress allegedly to halt impeachment proceedings against him. Whoever wins the second round will hold office until May 2025. Following a campaign marred by political violence, especially during its final week when presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio was assassinated, Sunday's voting passed without incident. Ecuador's top electoral authority also reported that cyber attacks traced to Bangladesh, China, India, Indonesia, Pakistan, Russia, and Ukraine had targeted the electronic voting system used by Ecuadorians living abroad, but failed to disrupt the vote count. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from the Washington Post. Democracy is on the ballot in the upcoming Ecuadorian runoff election, as the country desperately needs to tackle organized crime. If the nation refrains from electing the candidate picked by Rafael Correa, a corrupt politician and authoritarian who has been criminally convicted, Washington should ramp up cooperation with Quito to show that lawful methods are effective at fighting violent drug gangs. And Telesur gives us the establishment critical narrative. Neoliberal policies have plunged Ecuador into security and economic crises. It's time for Ecuadorians to let the progressive citizen revolution return to power, as the country can't risk losing more time trialing inexperienced politicians. In the late 2000s, Correa managed to move a devastated, hopeless country forward. Today, he will assist Gonzalez in getting the country back on track. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 75% chance that the next president of Ecuador will remain in office through the end of their term. According to a recent Human Rights Watch report, Saudi border guards have killed hundreds of migrants. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, CNN, Voice of America, Fox News, CBS, and New York Times. According to a Human Rights Watch report released Monday, Saudi Arabia's border guard has killed hundreds of Ethiopians with machine gun and mortar fire as they tried to cross into the kingdom from Yemen based on evidence collected between March 2022 and June 2023. 
The report cites interviews with 42 Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers and over 350 videos and photographs showing dead bodies and burial sites posted to social media, as well as satellite imagery. HRW refugee and migrant rights researcher Nadia Hardman claimed the killings were conducted in a remote border area out of view of the rest of the world. An anonymous Saudi government official dismissed the report as unfounded, but offered no evidence to support the assertion. Yemen's Houthi rebels, who control part of the Yemeni side of the border, haven't commented on the matter so far. U.S. experts last year reported that there were concerning allegations that cross-border artillery shelling and small arms fire by Saudi Arabia security forces killed approximately 430 migrants in southern Saudi Arabia and northern Yemen at the beginning of 2022. The war in Yemen has raged since 2014, when the Houthi rebels captured the capital, Sana'a, and a Saudi-led coalition intervened the following year to prevent the group from taking over the entire country. The report also accuses the Houthis of widespread abuse of migrants by facilitating smuggling, extortion, and attention. Thanks, Eric. Human Rights Watch brings us Narrative A. Yet again, it's become clear that Saudi Arabia is committing grave human rights abuses against some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. The Houthis, of course, are also committing crimes, but the Saudi border guard is committing regular massacres against migrants, and the international community must hold it accountable for these brutal discretions. We follow that up with Narrative B coming from Al Jazeera. Given that there is no reliable evidence that the Saudi border guard abused any migrants, such allegations against the kingdom are completely baseless. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time, they say there's a 50% chance that Mohammed bin Salman will become the king of Saudi Arabia by September 2026. Russia's lunar mission fails after Luna 25 crashes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NDTV, Washington Post, TASS, RT International, and Reuters. Russia's first moon mission in 47 years has failed after the Luna 25 automatic lunar station collided with the lunar surface and crashed, the country's space agency Roscosmos said on Sunday. The crash came after the crewless spacecraft attempted to enter pre-landing orbit ahead of a planned soft landing on Monday on the moon's south pole. Instead, it entered an undesignated orbit and lost contact, the agency stated. According to Roscosmos, communication with Luna 25 was lost at 14.57 Moscow time, 11.57 Greenwich Mean Time, on Saturday, and efforts to locate the spacecraft and restore conflict were unsuccessful. It added that an investigation would be established into the causes of the crash. Luna 25 launched on August 11 from the Vostochny Cosmodrome in the Amur region of the country's Far East, was Russia's first mission since the Soviet era and had been racing to land on the moon's south pole ahead of India's Chandrayaan-3. Earlier this week, the spacecraft, expected to operate and conduct long-term research on the lunar exosphere and examine lunar soil for the presence of ice, reached lunar orbit and sent back high-resolution photos of the moon's dark side. Russian officials were reportedly expecting the success of the Luna 25 mission to revive Russia's moon program as well as show the world Moscow can compete with the superpowers in space despite the months-long Ukraine war and Western sanctions. Those were the facts, and we begin our round of spins with an anti-Russian narrative coming from NDTV. This failure underscores Russia's decline as a former space power since the 1960s, when the country became the first to launch a satellite to orbit the Earth and a Russian citizen became the first man to travel into space. Moscow has tried to hearken back to its Soviet days, but has failed to become an aerospace superpower in the modern age, primarily due to deep-rooted corruption. 
a decline in its scientific education system, and the Kremlin's insistence on making the moon mission a PR activity rather than a scientific expedition. And the Moscow Times brings us the pro-Russian narrative. With the launch of the Luna 25 spacecraft, Russia attempted to return to the space race and show Western countries it could successfully operate the world's most ambitious lunar operation, despite the massive cost of military operations in Ukraine. Luna 25's crash landing is a blow to Russia's space ambitions. However, while the U.S. and its allies can mock Russia's failed lunar mission, Moscow will continue to use its scientific capabilities and resources to explore the moon's water and rare earth deposits. We have a nerd narrative as well for this story coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 68% chance that India's Chandrayaan-3 mission will successfully land a rover on the moon. You know, the, the story reminds me of one of my all-time favorite uh, Chevy Chase movies, Spies Like Us with Chevy and uh, Dan Aykroyd. Honestly, I have not. It's one of, that's one I have to see. It's on my list. Oh, I you have not it. seen it? Oh, come on, Scott. You got me with Spies oh, Like Us. So is that, you, should, I just tur- should I just watch that tonight? Yes, that is. I mean, that's yeah, a... I got yeah, to. Yeah, you got to. News coming from Niger as ECOWAS rejects the coup leader's transition plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Cable, BBC News, Al Jazeera, France 24, and DW. The Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, has rejected a power transition plan proposed by Niger's military junta following a meeting between the new Nigerian leaders and representatives of the regional bloc. Commissioner Abdel Fattah Moussa told BBC on Sunday that ECOWAS will not accept any prolonged transition again in the region and called on the junta to hand over power within the shortest possible time while warning that the military aspect is very much on. This comes after General Abdur Mane Chiani suggested a three-year transition of power at Saturday's talks in the Nigerian capital, Naimi, warning that any intervention by foreign forces would not be a walk in the park. In a televised address, Chiani says the junta's goal wasn't to confiscate power and announced the launch of a national dialogue to ally concrete steps for a new constitutional life within a 30-day period. Moussa announced Thursday that most ECOWAS member states had agreed to commit troops for military intervention and that they were ready to intervene after the regional bloc decided to activate a standby force to restore constitutional rule in Niger. Meanwhile, Niger's state television reported that the country, along with Mali and Burkina Faso, which are also under military rule, has developed a defense strategy with, quote, concrete measures in case ECOWAS decides to take military action. Thanks, Eric. Radio Free International brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The fact that ECOWAS has rejected this long transition period is a sign of strength, as the junta is merely trying to buy time to consolidate its power at the expense of freedom and democracy. ECOWAS and the international community must not let themselves be misled by the coup plotters and maintain pressure on the illegitimate regime. A peaceful solution to restore constitutional order in Niger would be desirable, and it's up to the junta to prevent military intervention. An establishment critical narrative coming from Sahara reporters. ECOWAS shouldn't allow itself to be used as a tool of the U.S. and French interests in Niger under the guise of supposedly restoring democracy. Any military action by the regional bloc and the inhumane sanctions don't serve the interests of the Nigerian people or those of Africa, but only those of the Western powers. ECOWAS must move away from this NATO interventionist mentality and find a truly autonomous African solution to the crisis in Niger. And that solution can only be diplomatic. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time, their community predicts there's a 45% chance that ECOWAS will intervene militarily in Niger before October 1st, 2023. 
Russia warns F-16s to Ukraine will escalate the conflict. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Barron's, Newsweek, The Guardian, TASS, and CNN. On Monday, Russia's ambassador to Denmark, Vladimir Barban, described the latter's decision to supply Ukraine with F-16 fighter jets as an escalation of the conflict, adding such a position pushes Ukraine into the abyss and condemns its people to new victims. The warning comes after the Netherlands and Denmark on Sunday pledged to provide Kyiv with F-16s once the training of Ukrainian pilots had been satisfactorily completed. Denmark's Prime Minister Meta Frederiksen said her country would provide 19 jets, hopefully around New Year, eight in 2024 and the remaining five in 2025 as a token of Denmark's unwavering support for Ukraine's fight for freedom. However, Danish Defense Minister Jacob Elliman Jensen asserted Ukraine could only use its F-16s to drive the enemy out of the territory. He added it's important they will be used for self-defense in Ukraine. The idea is so that the planes are not used for an attack on Russia. Though the Netherlands didn't reveal how many jets it would provide, Prime Minister Mark Root said the country currently possesses 42 F-16s that could soon be replaced by more modern F-35 jets. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who visited both countries on Sunday, described their decision to deliver F-16s to Kyiv as historic and the most important one yet. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from CNN. Ukraine acquiring these long-sought-after jets is a significant step toward countering Russia's air superiority. The F-16s will allow the country to defend its skies from Russian attacks, as they can be used in air-to-air and ground attack missions. TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. The West's transfer of F-16 jets to Ukraine demonstrates that the U.S. and its allies aim to prolong the conflict further and have no intention of reaching a peace settlement. Russia considers the F-16s a nuclear threat because of their capacity to carry atomic weapons. Metaculous Prediction Community has a nerd narrative for us. They say there's a 4% chance that there will be a deadly clash between the U.S. and Russian armed forces before 2024. Denmark uh, giving these uh, old jets to uh, Ukraine while they have new ones coming in reminds me of that scene from the very, very beginning of the first Rocky where uh, Rocky gets out of the ring in that horrible boxing club and he asks that guy for a cigarette and the guy gives him the cigarette he's smoking, but then takes a new one out and starts smoking it himself. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, wait, wait, wait. give you this old one. Uh, what, you said Rocky. What is Rocky? Is that, is that a movie or... <laughs> That's a jab. Speaking of speaking of Rocky, that's a jab. You got yeah. you got me. You got yeah. me. That's a come down for the count. Good one. The London mayor has been accused of stifling dissent over emissions zones. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Times, The Telegraph, Independent, and Sky News. Newly released emails show the office of London Mayor Shadiq Khan pressuring a scientist to downplay a study released which showed that London's ultra-low emission zones program has a negligible effect on pollution, leading some to question the mayor's office's relationship with the scientists it funds. The emails show Khan's environment and energy deputy Shirley Rodriguez telling Imperial College London researcher Frank Kelly that the mayor's office was really disappointed the college decided to release a study questioning the effectiveness of the zones. One of the several email exchanges between Rodriguez and Kelly details the researcher vowing to fight back against the study challenging the effects of the plan to improve air quality in London by levying a per-day charge on vehicles that don't meet emission standards. 
Kelly is the director of the college's Environmental Research Group, which has received hundreds of thousands of pounds from the City of London. The Conservative Party has accused Kelly and the mayor's office of having an alarmingly cozy relationship. The study in question from the college's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering found that the ULES program only cut nitrogen dioxide by less than 3%. The emails show frequent contact between Kelly and Rodriguez to promote the program. A spokesperson for Khan's office denied that there was any interference with the college's research. The program's expansion to every London borough by the end of August has been faced with political opposition and unsuccessful legal challenges. Thanks, Eric, for those facts. We have a right narrative spin on this story from Auto Express. These findings give proof to what people have known all along. Ultra-low emission zones are nothing but a cash grab and are not supported by science. Cash-strapped Londoners could see an added expense of thousands of pounds a year imposed on them amid a cost-of-living crisis. This policy needs to be reversed, as Sadiq Khan's Labour Party will seemingly stop at nothing to flee citizens with this faux-green guise. The Guardian gives us a left narrative for this story. What Khan's office has done is not improper. It was merely providing feedback on the next steps in the process. Air pollution is a killer, and the government needs to take action to keep Londoners healthy. This program is a step in the right direction and will help tackle the scourges of climate change, pollution, and a looming health crisis over dirty air. When I see controversies like this, I mean, I, I can see the benefit of, of not having emissions in certain parts of a city because you want to reduce traffic or, you know, just change the demographic or whatever you want to do. But if you have to wrap that in a thing that doesn't seem to be totally true, why can't they just say, hey, no cars here? Why do they have to mix it with some other thing? Mm, they want to make money. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. I think that that's your answer for everything. And you're, I think it is too. you're probably always right. A new report claims the Japanese military covered up sexual and other harassments. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Japan Times, and BBC News. Japan's military has been accused of covering up sexual and other harassment cases within the Self-Defense Forces, or SDF. There were a total of 1,325 cases involving both men and women, with over 60% of victims not reporting their experiences. The survey, conducted between September and November 2022 after former ground SDF member Rena Ganoy claimed she'd been sexually harassed by colleagues, found that power harassment accounted for 77% of cases and sexual harassment for 12%. For those who did report their alleged harassment, many claimed they had not received proper help. Some felt pressured to drop their complaints and others didn't know whom to approach or were afraid of being targeted by whistleblower hunters. According to the panel of outside experts, structural problems within the defense ministry were at issue. This included an erroneous belief that harassment was acceptable, as well as a gap in awareness between superiors and subordinates. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A, and it's coming from BBC News. Harassment in Japan, particularly of a sexual nature, is part of a broader problem in Japan's justice system. Though the government has recently taken steps to provide more legal protection to victims, there is an underlying cultural issue enabling this. Not only must Japan codify laws to clearly state which conduct is allowed, but it also must restructure its culture so new generations don't accept such despicable behavior as normal. And CNN counters with Narrative B. While Japanese women were historically confined to household or administrative tasks, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's womanomics policy in 2013 began to elevate their roles in the military. There's been a noticeable progression in the SDF, with women entering roles previously reserved for men. 
These advancements underscore a shift towards empowering women and a broader shift towards more equitable values and institutions to hold violators of these values accountable. Tragic news from California as a shopkeeper has been shot and killed in a pride flag confrontation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, BBC News, NBC, CNN, and CBS. Laura Ann Carlton, the 66-year-old owner of the Magpie Clothing Store in Cedar Glen, California, was shot and killed on Friday after a dispute over the rainbow pride flag outside her store, according to authorities. The suspect, who has not been identified, fled the scene on foot and was found by police in possession of a handgun. After a lethal force encounter with police, the man was pronounced dead, according to the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. The police say that the suspect made several disparaging remarks about the pride flag before allegedly killing Carlton. Deputies responded to the shooting around 5 p.m. local time where Carlton was pronounced dead on the scene. A community LGBTQ group remembers Carlton, who did not identify as LGBTQ as an advocate for everyone in the community. Carlton's daughter, Ari, said the pride flag had been stolen and replaced numerous times in the past. California Governor Gavin Newsom described the shooting as absolutely horrific on social media. Hollywood director Paul Feig, a friend of Carlton, blamed hateful language for the shooting and other acts of violence that have targeted the LGBTQ community. The incident occurred in Cedar Glen, a town approximately 60 miles east of downtown Los Angeles. LGBTQ rights group GLAD, Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and the Anti-Defamation League report more than 350 incidents of vandalism, assault, and harassment against the LGBTQ community in the U.S. since June of 2022. We've got split right and left narratives on this story. The left narrative comes from USA Today. An innocent woman has been killed as a result of inflammatory right-wing scaremongering over sexual and gender culture war issues. The rights attacks on the LGBTQ community have created intense fear, where threats of violence against them loom larger than ever before. The repercussions of this rhetoric go beyond trying to get votes, gets people killed. We follow that with a right narrative coming from Newsweek. This is a tragic case, the circumstances of which we do not fully know, especially with regard to the mental state of the accused. The LGBTQ community has unfortunately been hijacked by a radical fringe that is out of step with the public's views, risking adding fuel to the fire and causing more harm to the LGBTQ community. Carlton should be mourned without being used to fuel divisive, woke rhetoric. President Biden's administration urges Americans to get the fall COVID booster. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, Mint, and Breitbart. Biden administration officials have told various news outlets that the White House is planning to urge Americans to get a COVID booster shot this fall in response to a spike in infections. An anonymous official told Reuters we will be encouraging all Americans to get those boosters in addition to flu shots and RSV shots. Last week, the U.S. CDC and the WHO announced they have discovered another COVID variant. The BA-286 is one of dozens of variants being monitored as it carries a large number of mutations. Large pharmaceutical companies have been developing vaccines for the emerging variants, as Moderna announced Thursday that initial data showed its new booster is effective against the Aris and Fornax subvariants. Meanwhile, Novavax, Pfizer, and BioNTech SE have created updated shots to counter the XBB-15 subvariant. While CDC data suggests there will be an uptick in cases, overall levels of infections and hospitalizations remain low. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from NBC. 
As summer turns into fall, COVID cases along with the flu and RSV infections are expected to rise, and responsible adults should get their booster shots to look out for their health and for the health of others. Respiratory viruses continue to mutate at a rapid rate, and new vaccines are required to keep up with these mutations. The COVID vaccines have saved countless lives, and taking boosters this fall will help protect Americans from new variants. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the D.C. Inquirer. Here we go again. The Biden administration is back pushing Big Pharma's latest shot to protect against new variants of COVID. It was understandable for people to do their part to take the first vaccine in 2021 after the dystopian lockdowns of 2020. But the developments of the last three years show that these vaccines are enriching Big Pharma and the political machine behind them. Don't be surprised if there aren't many people lining up for this latest booster this fall. Metaculus has a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance the World Health Organization will announce the COVID-19 pandemic has ended by August of 2024. I didn't know it was that they had. I, I felt like various sources have announced that it was over. I know about a year ago at this time, Biden said on you know 60 Minutes or wherever that right. it was, it was, it was over. And there's yeah. administration in April, I think, said it was. Biden felt like he had made enough money. <laughs> made enough, right. <laughs> yeah, he wanted His to make. His sons <laughs> made enough money off this deal. <laughs> At least he has enough money to buy a new laptop now. That's important, you know. Spain beats England to win the FIFA Women's World Cup. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Washington Post, NBC, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and France 24. On Sunday, Spain defeated the reigning European champions and pre-match favorite England, one to zip in the final of the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023 at Stadium Australia in Sydney. Spanish captain and left-back Olga Carmona scored the winning goal in the 29th minute, ensuring La Roja could lift the team's maiden Women's World Cup trophy. It was Spain's women's third appearance and made them the fifth country ever to win the tournament. Spain had the edge in possession, 47% to 37%. More attempts on goal, 14 to 7, and shots on target, 5 to 3. In the second half, England's goalkeeper Mary Earps saved a penalty shot by Spain's Jennifer Hermoso. England and Spain were both vying for their first Women's World Cup title at the ninth edition of the Global Soccer Event, which was co-hosted by Australia and New Zealand. Spain midfielder Aitana Bonmati won the Golden Ball for Best Player, while England's Erps claimed the Golden Glove Award for the Best Goalkeeper. The Golden Boot Award for scoring the most goals of the tournament went to Japan's Hinata Miyazawa. The victory makes Spain the first team to hold the Under-17, Under-20, and Senior titles simultaneously. It also means they are the second nation, after Germany, to have won both the men's and women's trophies. Thanks, Eric. We have our last round of narrative spin, starting with Narrative A from The Guardian. It's a shame for the UK that the Lionesses' valiant efforts ended in defeat, but the dedication from all teams and hosts involved in the tournament has delivered a remarkable contest, jettisoning women's football to its highest peak yet. There is still much more to achieve, as funding from FIFA for the contest remains a comparative sliver of the money put into the men's game. However, the potential for new markets in this sport is now evident, and there is much to look forward to for the future of women's football. Narrative B comes from Joe, United Kingdom. This is certainly a high for the women's game, but it's one that has unfortunately been overshadowed by the controversy concerning Spanish coach Jorge Vilda. The muggy atmosphere around the figure, whose tenure has been worrying allegations over players' treatment and welfare, even resulting in key players missing out on Sunday's glory, has contaminated this competition. It is not enough to shine the spotlight only on FIFA when toxicity and problematic cultures may already be at the top of women's football. And finally, a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that England will next win a FIFA men's or women's World Cup by the year 2036. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on the Verity Podcast, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.